But why don't you all turn with me to uh, Ephesians 3. You can see the verses on that slide. I just have one question for you. Is God dead? I'm sure some of you remember this cover on Time Magazine, um, or at least if you don't remember it, you've seen it. It caused quite a stir back in 1966 when it was first released. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you were there or not when you saw it. Um, But it caused quite a stir because what's the implication here? Well, Well, God's dead. That's the implication. Or if God's not dead, then he's, he's impotent. He's no power. Or if he has some power, he's at least he's not worthy of being our God. That's the implication. And in fact, there was a rabbi at the time named Richard Rubenstein who emerged as a writer around the same time talking about the same sort of subject. And he wrote about the meaning and the impact in particular of, of the Holocaust and his experience as a Jew in that time, and the aftermath in particular. And just in light of the evil that was committed against him and his people, um, and against so many, his conclusion was that God was surely dead. At least he thought. Or at least that the idea of the God of Jacob was irrelevant now in modern age. You know, if there is a God, he was surely not transcendent. He was surely not all-powerful. And if there was a God, he could only be known to have made the world, really. And then, like a parent raising a child, he made the world, and now he just looks on as the universe grows and as the universe matures. That we are a people now distinct from our creator, and we are now outgrowing the God who gave birth to us. So, no, maybe he would say that God isn't dead, but he is impotent, and he is a helpless bystander. I want to say maybe his conclusion is, is entirely misguided and it's flawed and it's ultimately tragic, but don't discount the experience as one that is absent from the ones you love or even from yourself. Does God feel distant? Does he feel like a bystander? You know, do all the promises in the scripture that you read, do they just seem too lofty to be true? Well, you're not alone. And so I want to pick up in Ephesians 3 where we left off. So look at our text for today. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. We only have two verses to get through. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want to say that these two verses that we're reading, they serve as this pivot point in Ephesians. You know, when I say that, I mean that they serve as this bridge. So we're going to connect now the first three chapters that we read in Ephesians to the last three chapters. So Paul is about to shift gears, so to speak. He's going to go from theology to application. So we spent the first three chapters really explaining the reality of who we are as Christians, what it means to be Christ followers, how we are saved by grace through faith, how Christ was not exclusive to any one people group anymore and was now given to all people groups in all nations and how that is good news. He talked about how no one is so far gone that they are outside of the reach of God's mighty work in them. All those are true. All those are lofty promises. And before he moves on to tell us how we ought to live our lives now as a result of that, he says a prayer. And he asked that through Christ, we would be strengthened 
to comprehend those uh, words. And that we would truly know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That was his prayer. And I wonder maybe if Paul, if he anticipated a response from his listeners. Because you can picture the scene. 2,000 years ago, there was a letter that finally arrived to the church in Ephesus, and there's a man, an elder, standing in front of the congregation, and he opens up the scroll, and he reads what Paul wrote. And first time being read, nobody's ever heard it before. And they hear maybe for the first time in their lives that they, as Gentile believers, have an equal place among God's people. And that they were created with a purpose, intentionally, by God. That they themselves, you and I, would be numbered among the saints of all time and that we would be a part of the peace of the dwelling place of God as a holy temple. So maybe the reaction is the same as some of you. I don't believe you. My experience tells me otherwise. Take a look outside. Look, at, look, look what's going on in the world. What do you see? I'm not sure it's a temple. It looks more like a garbage heap, to be honest. You know, are, we, are we, as Christians, really being built into his holy church? Is it really possible? I think those were all legitimate questions that those listeners and that you and I might have when we read these promises. Have you ever found yourself asking the same questions? Those are some lofty promises we read in Scripture, and I'm not seeing it. Well, let's look at Paul's response to that. Remember that we read, uh, that what we read rather is directly after praying to God, and he asks him to do something that's beyond our comprehension. So even go back a couple of verses, verse 18, he's praying, saying that you, believers, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with the fullness of of God. I mean, talk about asking the impossible. What they must have heard was, you know, Lord, I pray that they would know what cannot be known and that they will be filled with the fullness of God that cannot even be measured. You know, is that really possible? Well, verse 20, now to him who is able. And so what does that tell us? Point number one is that God is able in, in the original reading, even, um, there's a bit of a play on words here that we'll get to in a little bit uh, between able and between power that's used at the end of this verse. And so it's the same root word, but it's, just, it's used as a verb. But it's essentially, it's saying, now to him who has the power to do, to him who is capable, to him who can, according to his own strength, fulfill all of those lofty promises that we just read about. So do you get the point? Does that look impossible to you? Well, praise the God who can do it anyways. There is no denying the ability of God. In Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to us, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory, the power of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Ecclesiastes 3.14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away. You know, and I can, I can go on and on. You can go on and on. You cannot read through scripture and come away saying, yes, God exists, but his hands are tied. 
He can't act. You can't read through scripture and come away with that conclusion. So no, we have a God who is able, and then it says we also have a God who does. Praise the God who does. To him who is able to do. And there's a picture that comes with this statement. Okay, it's not just an ability, but it's an action. God is a doer, Paul is saying. God is a maker. He is a worker. He is not idle. So what makes God reliable? What makes God the true God? It's that he is able to do something. He is not like the false gods that were worshipped at that time. You even get this picture. You can look at the prophets of Baal when they challenged Elijah and the one true God in 1 Kings. They called on their false god to do something. You can read it in 1 Kings 18. The, the false prophets, they were confident that their god would send fire and burn a bull when called upon. And it says in scripture, and they looked, or and they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And then later it says, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. How tragic is that? No voice. No answer. No one even to pay attention to them. But then we know the one who is able to do listened to Elijah. He said in verse 37, answer me, this is Elijah speaking, answer me, O Lord, answer me that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So that tells us that God is able to do. And so no, he is not impotent, he is not idle, and he's certainly not dead. And that would have been enough to make Paul's point. Praise the God who can do it. That's all he had to really say. But there's more to tell. There's more to write about. There is more to proclaim, Paul is saying. How much can God do? More. Abundantly more. Infinitely more. And then we have to ask ourselves, infinitely more than what? Than whatever you can imagine. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Let me show you how emphatic that statement is. And just know, look, we're, we're, we're reading a doxology right now, so that just means we're re- reading words of praise. And so that typically, it comes in three short pieces. There's an address, there's the praise, and then there's this time frame for the praise. So you can picture when we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. In other words, praise God right now, everyone. It's that simple. It's easy for us to remember. But now look back at our text. Look at that with me. Look for a minute at how he arranges this, how he puts those words together, how he goes deeper and deeper into describing the God that hears our prayers. Unto him that is able to do all that we ask or think. No, not all that we ask or think. Above all that we ask or think. 
abundantly above all that we ask or think. How about exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us? That sends a clear message to the listener and to you and I, doesn't it? To the one that is thinking, there is no way that's going to happen. Paul says you cannot limit what God can do. God is not restricted by your prayers. He is not restricted by your prayers. Move on to the next slide. He is not limited, not even to our highest requests, and he is not limited to our loftiest thoughts. And that is good news. Can you just imagine for a minute if you got everything that you wanted exactly as you wanted it? It sounds nice at first glance, but where would you be? Uh, you probably don't know this, but there was a time where I wanted to be a pilot, actually, for a while. Um, as a senior in high school, I really considered it. You know, I love just, I love being on planes, I love flying. Um, I'm the weird one that, you know, give me an economy seat uh, in a 12-hour flight, and it's just, it's awesome. It's cool. Um, and then how cool would that be to fly 747s? Like, that's just, it's a dream. Um, and that was my dream for a bit. Um, but the problem was that it cost money um, and time. And this was before I could just go on a smartphone and figure out how to do it all. Um, and so I just, I, you know, I thought maybe I missed the boat. Um, so I went to college for business. Okay, and that was my dream. I'll travel internationally as a businessman. You see where this is going? <laughs> um, and none of those plans was I considering Christ. I wasn't at all. You know, and I, that led me to all those failed plans, those failed requests. It brought me to a low point in my freshman year of college, and then the Lord worked through crew to establish my relationship, to strengthen my relationship with him. And it brought me to a point where I never, I, just, I never would have experienced that if I had been given everything that I had asked for. Sure, you know, maybe I'd be flying 37,000 feet in the air, right? but I'd be dead in my sin. Look how else Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, and to God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You notice that same expressive language that he uses again? All right. This is a God who cares for you. This is a God who provides for you. And of course, God is able to make grace abound, and then he just seems to like go over the top again in, in, in that verse. Always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That is the picture of an infinite God who is not limited by what we ask. But despite our own uh, feeble minds, speaking for myself, our own limited understanding of what we need, God will provide more than we can hope for to equip us for every good work. You know, because not only is he, is he not limited by what we might ask, he is not limited by what we might even imagine, what we might even think. You know, if we could only do our highest thoughts of what could possibly happen, our wildest dreams, we would have no hope in this world. We wouldn't have any. And let me explain what I mean by that. You know, C.S. Lewis writes uh, in one of his most famous sermons, The Way to Glory, if we consider, and I quote, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures 
fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Saying we dream of mud pies. And he delivers a holiday at the sea. But I want to wreck look, it might not always look pretty getting where you're going. Look, if you picture that illustration of making mud pies and then being offered a holiday, it's not like he's just instantly going to be at that holiday at the sea. He might go kicking and screaming. And just even imagine now, 2,000 years ago, think of what they were picturing, what they were hoping for, what they were asking for, what they were dreaming for. We had the pious people and the great thinkers of the day. They imagined a Messiah that would come in splendor, that would come in glory, and that they would cast out the Roman oppressors and return power and glory to the Hebrew nation and God's people. That's a wild thought, isn't it? That's a lofty request. But Jesus didn't come in glory and splendor. He came in a barn. He didn't cast out the Roman oppressors. He let them crucify him. He didn't return power and glory to the people of Israel 2,000 years ago. And as a matter of fact, just 40 years after his death, Jerusalem would be destroyed. The temple would be brought to ruin. And this all came to pass because what the thinkers of the day were imagining and what they were believing was not good enough. It was not glorious enough. What would have been a great feat and a wonderful picture for them in the moment would have meant hopelessness for all of us. Don't miss that. God brought about a circumstance which made no sense to those people. Made no sense. The crucifixion made no sense to the people around the Son of God at the time, the Redeemer, the the Messiah. If any one of his own disciples were in charge, not just Peter, if any one of his disciples were in charge, they would not have come up with that plan at all. But what Christ accomplished was infinitely better than their wildest dreams. Jesus' own followers could not have imagined. They were devastated by the cross. They were. Some of the followers on the road to Emmaus, even in Luke 24, they said that we, talking to Jesus, they said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They hoped. They're saying their prayers weren't answered. Maybe they were feeling like God is distant. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God can't help us in the way that we thought. They knew only what was good to ask for their generation. It's kind of like us. We know only to ask what is good for ourselves and for our generation. But when Christ came as a boy in a manger with no royal court to greet him, he knew what was good for their generation, for their children's generation, for their children's 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 generation, all the way to a generation of believers in Fayette, Maine, 2,000 years after the cross. What was unimaginable is being realized today. We have to imagine that. Picture that. And it's all because, all because expectations were not met 2,000 years ago. They were exceeded. And if the Lord tarries, if the world carries on another 2,000 years beyond today, what is unimaginable now will be realized then. Because he is able 
and he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And will we always understand? No. All right, like Paul prays just two verses before, can we possibly comprehend the breadth and length and height? Can we possibly know the knowledge that surpasses any understanding? No, not fully. It's not in this life. His love is just it's not going to make sense to us at times. It really, it won't. And so, of course, when we look out in the world and we see circumstances that just don't make any sense, you know, I, I've seen some incredible things happen. And I've seen some tragic things happen. There was a woman in our church, even. Um, it was a mom of one of my friends. Uh, one of my friends who ended up being my best friends. And as a child, I remember when she was diagnosed with cancer. I mean, it was heart-wrenching at the time. There were three kids, um, not that much, a little bit younger than my mom, but about the same age. Um, and the church came together, and they prayed, and after a time, she was healed. She was officially in remission, praise God. You know, then her boys grew up, and I roomed with one of them in college, and for three years, I heard plenty of stories from him about how the Lord had used his mother to glorify God. And then I came back from college, and I ended up getting to know her and her husband as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's just what a glorious time that was. And I remember even talking with her son as an adult now after college about that cancer diagnosis that she had when we were kids, how scary it was. And we were praising God that she was healed from that. Um, and then about a few weeks after that conversation, I found out that her cancer was back. Um, you can imagine how hard, and I know how hard you prayed. Just as hard as the first time, I would bet. Maybe even harder than the first time. And then after a year and a half, she died. Does that make sense? You know, our prayers are answered with the healing once, and then with the same woman, with the same prayers to the same God by the same people, our prayers were answered with a funeral. Does that make sense to us? No, I'll say that no. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why she died. It was not a lack of faith, I'll tell you that much. But sin and death, they are present in this world. They are. And sometimes things just don't make sense. So I want to recognize that. It's important to remember that. And as long as we are living in a fallen and a broken world, our circumstances won't make perfect sense all the time. Because again, did the cross make sense to the first century believer? No, it did not. But we know that ultimately, in the fullness of time, that it will bring about the fullness of God's plan and his glory for our good. Amen? Amen. And so I want you to expect God to answer your prayers. And I want you to expect God to answer your wildest thoughts, but do not expect God to answer them in the ways that we are limited to. And so to those who say that God is dead or that God is weak, Paul says with the strongest emphasis, God is able. He's able to do far more than we can imagine. Right, but will he? Does he? Yes. Second point is that not only is God able, God is sovereign. He is intimately involved and intimately working in our lives. Look at verse 20 again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. According to what? Take a note of that, circle that, whatever, whatever you do in your Bibles, highlight according to what? What it connects to. There is a vital truth in those words that we need to take hold of. When Paul says that God can do so much more, he bases that statement on the reality 
of a tangible truth, that there is a power that is presently at work. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Paul is not careless with his words here. Right? Each one's important. When he writes that this ability to our, answer our prayers is according to something, he means that in the fullest sense of the meaning. So what, it, what he means is that the full arsenal of God's power is at work. And there is no short supply. There is no rationing. There is no one getting in his way. Nothing is hindering this power. And this power clearly belongs to someone. It's not ours. It's not yours. It's not mine. Just remember in the original letter, there was that play on words I talked about um, here between power and able. So he's saying, look, this is the one who is able, the one who has the power. This is the power that we're talking about. It's coming from that man, that person, that God. The power at work comes from the one who is able, God. And look, I know like, we are a pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of people. You know, we are proud of our accomplishments. But there is so much that we just, you have to admit, we cannot do. We can't manifest this by our own willpower. What needs to be done in our lives is being done by the one who can do it. And that's great news. We have the creator of the entire universe backing up these promises with his own strength, not ours. He is not handing you a checklist to complete and then turn it into him before he starts answering those prayers. He's got it. He's had it your whole life. And he still has it. Paul says that the power is working to answer all that we ask or think. And not all, that, not all that we had asked or had thought up until this point. So it's a present reality. It's a promise for now in the present wherever you are. He could have just said according to the power at work and stopped there. And that's true. God's power is at work. But part of being sovereign overall is being personally sovereign overall. So that says that God is anything but distant. And I, try to be, I want to be careful using terms like sovereign. I know it's a big word. Uh, and maybe you get pictures in your head about what it looks like. And I think oftentimes we get the wrong picture about what it looks like. Uh, maybe this past spring, you were like me, um, there was the coronation for you know, what we would call a sovereign, lowercase sovereign, um, over in England, across the pond. And I'll admit, I'm kind of curious about that type of stuff. Um, and maybe you pulled it up on YouTube later, like I did, and you watched... Um, you know, at least part of the ceremony. And so what you would have seen is the coronation of King Charles III, who is what they would call the sovereign of the United Kingdom, the sovereign over the Commonwealth. You know, over a billion people watched that service. Um, and that might be your picture of what sovereignty looks like, what a sovereign looks like. There's a high king in a faraway place who is ruler over his domain. Whatever he says goes. And the problem is that that is, that is not how our sovereign God works. Now, just picture for a second attending King Charles's coronation. And instead of having him leave in that gilded chariot back to his palace, he grabs you by the hand. And he walks back home with you. And King Charles, he opens the door, lets you in. Looks at you, says, what do you want for lunch? Turkey sandwich? Great. I'll grab the turkey out of the fridge for you. How's your day going? Right? And that, now, that might appear nuts. To us, because King Charles III is such an important figure in our world, and why would he spend a day with us? He's involved, sure, he makes decisions and represents the people in the United Kingdom, but he's not literally making any lunch for us. You know, that's because the sovereign over the United Kingdom is a man, 
He's limited in every way as we are. But our God is sovereign over all, which means he is directly, intimately involved in your life. He's not just sitting in a distant castle watching what's going on and saying, go do this and go do that. The one who created by his own power, the heavens and the earth and all that you see, he cares about what you had for breakfast. I believe that. He cares about how your day's going. He cares about how your quiet time is going. He cares about how you're feeling coming into this room. Don't mistake sovereignty for a distant ruler. And so to Richard Rubenstein, his school of thought, you know, maybe he would say God is active. Maybe he'd say God is involved. Maybe he'd say God has the ability. But if he has all these things, is God worthy of his position? Is God just misguided? Is he wrong? Or even, you might say, is he evil? We read that God is able. We read that God is sovereign. And yet, Richard Rubenstein and probably an untold number of others, they did. They felt the effects of some of the most evil events in human history. And so, how can a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, allow something like the Holocaust to take place? What sort of God are we serving? Praise God, we ourselves, we're not living through those atrocities, um, but millions lived and died through them. And so I think that's, we want to have an answer to that question. You know, you can look around and ask the same sort of thing, right? Why is there so much pain? Why do we experience tragedies today? And I'm not going to spend 40 minutes talking about the problem of evil in the world. Um, we can do that after if you want, but... Could God have stopped them, is the question. If God is powerful, if he's infinite, if he's holy, could he have struck Hitler down before the world war ever took place? I think the answer is yes. But why didn't he? I don't know. I don't know. I know that there is unmistakable evil in the world. We see that clearly. And that evil is not the result of God. The devastation caused by that second world war and many other wars and many other tragedies and the impact it had on millions, including Richard Rubenstein, was the result of evil men committing evil actions in a broken world. Okay, it ha it's happened for generations. It's happened since the beginning of the time. Joseph, the son of Jacob, hated by his brothers, left for dead, sold into slavery, and at the end of his life said this to his brothers the one who was the result of so much pain in his life, so much suffering. He said, do not fear, for am I, Joseph, in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And of course, you know, we can read Joseph's full story now. We have the benefit of hindsight. We see how everything works together in the ends and how all the evil against Joseph was redeemed for a good purpose. Sometimes the answer becomes clear in hindsight, and sometimes it doesn't. Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this letter. It wouldn't be long even before Paul was killed. He'd be martyred for his faith. And there's strong evidence even to, to say that John was the only disciple that did not suffer a gruesome death for his belief. Instead, he was exiled. I don't think any of those men in that day knew exactly why all of that evil was being committed. 
I think they know now because they're in glory, but their faith accepted that God was still working out his plan. Their faith accepted that God was still working out his plan. One moment, one life at a time, regardless of what we and our limited eyes might see. And does it make sense to us? No. Will it make sense to us? Well, in glory, I think at least. Their faith in God's ability and their faith in God's sovereignty is going to be rooted in our third point. That God is able despite our inability. God is sovereign despite our understanding. And that is great news because thirdly, God is glorious. Verses 20 and 21 again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. That's not a prayer request, I want to add. He isn't saying, Lord, please find some glory and take it. He's making a statement. Paul is saying, glory is yours, God. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so what is the natural response Paul has when he's describing who God is and what God is capable? Glory to God. God is good. God is worthy to be praised. His very nature, God's very nature is far more abundantly than all that we could ever imagine. And that's putting that lightly. We give glory to God because he alone is worthy of glory. He alone is glorious. Richard Rubenstein would say, how can we as Christians say that in the middle of evil actions in a wicked world? Well, the answer comes to us when we look at who we are linked to in this verse. To the church and Christ. Verse 21, we glorify God in the church and in Christ. Notice, you know, Paul shifted back to using the we language uh, in these two verses. So all of chapter three was about I or you. Now it's about we, the church, you and I, the image of the new temple that is being built that we read about in Ephesians 2 at the end of that, um, that this chapter is building off of is going to be in our minds now. You can picture us taking our place, a temple being built from every people group. We have a little corner for Fayette, uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It says that in 2.20, the whole body of believers growing together in the holy temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God. The point of the temple is not to look at the bricks and be awed. It's to commune with and worship the presence of the Lord, the glory of God. Any glory that we see in the church is not its own, but it comes from Christ. He's saying whatever is accomplished by us, his church, is because God is able, because God is sovereign, and because he enables us to do it. And so the glory belongs to him. And that speaks to who God is. The church has a crucial role to play in glorifying God, and it's rooted in our link with Christ. Again, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Why is it so important that the church and Christ are linked in glorifying God? You have to ask that how do we know that God is worthy? How do we know God is good? You want to know how God, good God is to you, to us? God is so good that even when the world shakes its fist at him, 
and loses sight of him and calls him weak or distant or dead, he sent his only son for us. He considers us. He loves us as he loves his only begotten son. We have that link, inseparable. And no, that's, that's not why he is good, because God is good. He is God. That's just who he is. Apart from us, he is still good, and apart from us, he is still worthy. But everything we do as a church points to the truth of his goodness towards us in Christ. The truth that when we sinned against God, and when we denied God, and when we glorified ourselves, our able and our sovereign and our glorious God sent his perfect son to die for our sins. The truth that when we have the, when we have the audacity to call God not good enough, when it's by his grace and his mercy alone that we even take breath, he, in spite of all that, chose to once and for all time inextricably link his son Jesus to us. So that when we recognize and we repent from our sins and we recognize Jesus as Lord, we will be saved. That's a miracle. That we who spit in God's face, we may now approach the Father because we are forever linked to his son. That's a miracle. And Pastor Henry did a phenomenal job painting that picture for us in communion today because we remember today how Christ gave himself for us. We remember today how his body was broken, how his blood was spilt, and we remember that Christ defeated death by rising from the dead on his own power victorious over it. And now because of that, we can glorify God because he looks at us and he doesn't see our sin and he doesn't see our shame. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who baptized us in his spirit. And God loves us with that same love. That is the God that we serve, the God who saved us. And praise God that this is true. Glory to him. This is good news. If we are united with Christ as the church, that has huge implications for us. And so remember, church, you know, whatever we do is for Christ. We represent Christ in all things, and he represents us for all time. We represent Christ, he represents us. Because God is able, because God is sovereign, because God is glorious. When the Father looks at us, we can stand before him blameless because his son lived the perfect life. When the world looks at us, when we represent Christ. One last truth that we need to praise him for, and then we'll wrap up, is that God's glory is eternal. God's ability, his willingness, his love for you, and his glory are everlasting. There is no expiration date. It knows no end. It says throughout all generations forever and ever. That's a long time. And I hope that that is an encouragement because our circumstances are momentary. Forever is a long time. This life is not. These moments are not. Just know that these moments are so minute in the grand scheme of things. And I'm not saying that to, to, to diminish what we are going through. Because life is hard. Praise God, this is the hardest we're ever going to have it. We have forever and ever to look forward to, and each moment here on this earth points us to that forever. But our time here is limited. 
we need to recognize that the false prophets who worship Baal, to no response, they died quickly. They were confronted with the truth, or they were confronted with the true and living God, and they saw his glory. But separated from the righteousness of Christ, they experienced it through his wrath. And Richard Rubenstein died. He can't deny the living God. That's a tragedy. And if for years we Christians looked at his life work and questioned why, then let us use his life now as a tragic reminder that we are eternal beings. The glory of God will be known through all generations, forever and ever. But how we respond to the God of the universe now will determine what forever and ever looks like. If you do not know the true and living God, one day you will. And if you are not linked to the righteousness of Christ, if he is not your Lord and Savior, it will be the same fate as the false prophets. But God is good. And he is gracious. And if you come before our able and our sovereign and our glorious God, well, if you try to do that in your own power, by your own merit, you will fall short. And in this life, when we transition to the next, there is no second chance. And we see that as a reminder in Scripture. And so today, today, now, see that God is good. I hope you see that. See that God is offering a relationship with his Son freely to you. That regardless of what you've done, regardless of your circumstances, or regardless where you find yourself, God loves you. And if you are looking for answers to life, around you, in other people, in your own merit, you're not going to find them in this world. But we have a God who has proven to be able to fulfill his promises. We have a God who is worthy of our faith. And so life will still be hard. Life is going to be hard. Evil is still lingering, and there are still going to be tears. And how does it all work together? I don't know. Because it's beyond our comprehension, it's beyond our imagination, but God is able, he's in control, and he's glorious. And so we end with a resounding amen from Paul. He says, this is true. God is not dead, he is alive. God is not impotent, he is powerful. God is not distant, he is here, he is sovereign over all, and God is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy. You are glorious, and you are gracious, and we have your truth in the Word of God. And I just, I want to pray for anybody here who, well, we're all going to go through hard times in our life. And I know that there are people here right now who are really going through some really hard times that I can't myself imagine. And they're praying and they're crying out to you, Lord, where are you? Answer me, Lord. And I, I just, I pray today, Lord, that you would make it clear that you would write in, on their hearts that you hear them and that you love them and that you are going to answer it in a way that is beyond their comprehension. Lord, meet us today. Show us today, Lord, that you're here with us. Lord, we know that your glory is infinite. Our time here on this earth is not. And so I pray for each person here who has not made that decision yet to glorify you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, Whatever's holding them back. Maybe they know that you exist, but, but, but they just they feel like they can't go to you. 
Oh, Lord, cast it out of their mind. Let them know that you are arms wide open, inviting them to you right now. Lord, I pray that they would take that step, that they would make that declaration, that they would have faith in you and Jesus as their Lord and Savior of their life. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.